0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
3: I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
3: Coming up, the White House urging social media users and platforms to stop circulating classified documents as it works to clean up the biggest intelligence leak in decades. We'll discuss.
0: And Twitter now allowing users to charge subscription fees. We'll break down the move as competitors look to grab the social giant's market share.
3: And we'll hear from the CEO of Amazon Web Services as the company joins the race for artificial intelligence dominance. All that, so much more coming up. Let's get to it with Shanali Basak, who's here, who's there in early, breaking all this bank news for us. Talk to us about the Silicon Valley Bank repercussions and really how sticky
4: some of these deposits are likely to be. It's really interesting to see just the movement. JP Morgan posted a surprise increase in deposits after quarters of decreases. Now, they say it's not necessarily a sticky phenomenon. They expect deposit outflows or or deposit pressure really to continue, if you will, because interest rates are still going up. Money markets are still very attractive here. But when you look at it, uh, they really did end up being a big beneficiary of what happened in the regional banking system in the last couple of months, if you will. Now, remember, PNC also reported today, too. Mm. And the reason that's important is because people were really worried about other mid-sized regional banks. And the deposit number there was a little above what analysts expected. So as we think about the broader pressures after the wake of Silicon Valley, uh, Valley Bank's real troubles that we've seen, uh, are other banks still feeling any pressure?
0: That's where I want to go. I saw your tweet. What is it that you said, Shanali? one 800 Jamie. That's literally what happened after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, isn't it?
4: To be fair, I stole that from John Farrow. But oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was charming, right? Because it, seriously, they did go to J.P. Morgan. And next week, remember, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are reporting. And presumably, they would have also have been beneficiaries, particularly Morgan Stanley, that also looks to bank a lot of these as Silicon Valley startup founders, if you will. And remember, we talked earlier in the week with Nishi Somaya over Goldman Sachs which really targeted the lending opportunity as well JP Morgan said net interest income is really going to expand very meaningfully of course that is picking up some business that we're seeing from other firms getting out of the market but also really interestingly here I find this to be a tech play if you will a lot of this net interest income is coming from credit cards so if you think about the payments businesses the credit card businesses everything that's online those are the things uh, that are really facilitating any of the love you're seeing in the banking system and this
3: is why it's so important to have shanali basak on who can do big banks and fintech and wrap it all into a tech kind of a focus for us Let's like, round it out with what's happening with First Republic, for example, at the moment, Shalali, because it's uh, interestingly actually under pressure. Are people worried about what's to come in terms of outflows and deposits?
4: Until that question is cleared up around First Republic, and First Republic, remember, as we've been talking about, has a big California tie. They have really banked a lot of the wealthy in California. Uh, and there are a lot of questions about uh, how far they've gone in places other banks might not have been able to. What is left behind as they're under pressure? Until they report, until that's out of the way, It's hard to say that the system isn't all clear, but it is a promising sign that we're seeing the bank earnings start off very cleanly today. But we do still have two weeks ahead of us here where we're going to get a lot of questions still about the client bases that we're talking about here and what kind of pressure that the banking system on the heels of those clients might feel.
0: I uh, used to be 1 800 Greg Becker, 1 800 Jamie Diamond right now. is so interesting to see the net result of that SBB collapse. Bloomberg, Shanali Basak, thank you so much. Let's go over to DC in Washington. The White House is urging social media companies to prevent the circulation of information that could hurt national security it works to clean up that intelligence leak. Joining us now for more is Bloomberg's Nat Security Editor, Nick Wadhams. Nick, the BGov article lead says it all. How did a 21-year-old with basically just a driving license and 18 months experience get access to that data? We've had an arrest. What are the latest details?
2: Well, uh, he's, he's been charged now with um, the uh, unlawful retention and dissemination of classified information. I mean, the big question here is what the government can really do. And that warning from the White House, hey, uh, if you see classified information online, don't share it sort of gets to uh, what a struggle they're really gonna have. I mean, the issue here is that he went on a private chat on Discord and started spreading this stuff around to his friends, and then someone in one of those chats took it and and amplified it more broadly on the wider net. And so far, the administration just is is making clear that it has not shown it really knows how to clamp down on something like that, and it's gonna have a really hard time doing so.
3: The responsibility, Nick, that was called on for social media platforms themselves coming from, or the press officer over at the White House. Do you you think that that's Mm. in any way a reality?
2: Well, I mean, Discord obviously did cooperate with the administration on this, as have other companies in the past. So I think uh, in, in large part, these companies do not want to have top secret classified information distributed on their platforms. But, you know, it gets to that broader question again. Okay, what can they do? This was a private chat. It was a relatively small group of people. Uh, By all accounts, he was putting information on there as far back as last December Mm. uh, and then switched over from just transcribing information to actually posting the documents. So what can they do? How closely do they need to be watching these chats? Uh, And that's something companies are going to have to grapple with, especially with this new pressure from the administration. The FBI released an affidavit Friday, and I just want to point
0: out that Discord, the platform, the social media company, was not named in that affidavit, but they did provide the FBI with the records requested because they were ordered to do so by the court. Uh, I just want to go back to the individual involved, Nick, if we can. I mean, what happens here? Are they still trying to find out exactly the breadth of information that uh, was put out there by him? What are kind of the legal procedures going forward?
2: Well, I mean, if you look at the arraignment uh, and the charging documents themselves, it it appears to be fairly clear cut uh, in terms of, what he's accused of doing and the evidence they have against him. That all looks, uh, you know, from a layman's perspective, pretty darn strong. But the issue I think that's going to happen now is, okay, how many documents actually were there? You know, there are several dozen that we know about, I think about a 100 now. But there's also this whole other element where early on, as we now know, he was actually typing out information from previous documents and putting that out to his friends and then decided that was too much of a hassle. So he was just going to photograph documents and start posting them because that was that was easier and quicker to do so the big question is we still don't know the full extent uh, of what was actually leaked the the documents we know about so far are extremely damaging uh, but I think investigators really are going to be honing in on that question of whether that's it or whether there's much more damage out there that they don't yet know about.
3: Nick Wadhams we thank you. We can call on you on these moments. Meanwhile, let's stick with where Nick is. Washington, just a little reminder for you. Go to Live Go if you're lucky enough to have a terminal. Bloomberg Surveillance is Tom Keen. He's currently on stage interviewing a whole raft of central bankers, of economists. As you see, Olivier Blanchard there at the moment, IMF, Skeeter Gopernath as well, Bank of England, Sevania, Tenreo. So just stick with this.
5: And also financial stability. I mean, we have a sense of very sharp changes in interest. All right,
0: coming up, Lauren Shipper, host of the Upload (laughs) podcast, is going to join us to discuss Twitter's move to allow users to start charging for content. We'll get more on the social media landscape next. This is Bloomberg.
3: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator?
6: Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
7: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: Twitter is now allowing users to charge for access to their own content. CEO Elon Musk tweeted the announcement, of course, on the platform and even said he'll offer AMAs for his subscribers. Joining us for the latest details, Bloomberg Sarah Fryer. You and I discussed this just as the tweet came out, and we thought, oh, that's interesting. Essentially, for a 12-month period, they are offering interesting terms to content creators.
8: Well, they're saying you're going to get all the money that you make. The only cut that we'll we'll have to take from it is the, the money we pay to the App Store for the first 12 months. After that, who knows? It could right. become part of Twitter's revenue proposition. But in 12 months, you could you could build a community, you could do a lot of, a lot of uh, building of that business, and then see what happens. Um, I I just wonder if, if Twitter is a place where, people feel like they can mm-hmm. get that stability because there has been so much, um, so much tension, so much tumult between Twitter and its creators. Um, Since Musk took over, they're they're losing their their blue check marks. It's become um, more confusing how to figure out the algorithm. So there are a lot of factors to consider if you're gonna build that business.
3: And Sarah, what's interesting is, slowly but surely, Substack and Twitter
8: seem to be trying to morph into one another. And, and that is, that's what the Substack CEO said we, we should expect when he was on your program recently. I mean, this is, this is the, the thing is, you know, when you're trying to build new revenue models, you're, you're going to build in all directions. And advertising is not working for Twitter right now. They have to come up with something else. So they're, they're going to throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall in the next few weeks months years Uh, we we saw subscriptions here but they also said you're going to start to be able to buy and trade stocks via twitter i mean all sorts of ideas are going to be thrown at us and and meanwhile twitter blue their first idea in in the sort of new money making category hasn't seemed to be doing so well only one percent of of twitter users actually i think less than one percent so far based on estimates have signed up to pay eight dollars a month to musk for that so fine breaking it down we thank you
3: so much and Bloomberg and let's stick on all of this Lauren Schnipper's with us vice president of corporate development at Jelly Smack it's a company actually focused on amplifying content creators Lauren you also host a creator upload podcast you previously ran creator partnerships over at well the artist formerly known as Facebook and I'm interested in do you think this will work will content creators that you try and amplify want to go via Twitter in this way
5: I mean, right now, no, I don't think it will work. Mainly because I don't think this is a platform that creators can sort of trust, right? Like it was just you guys were just sort of talking about that, right? There's been so much tumult at Twitter in the past few months um, since Elon's taken over. If you look at the thread where Elon tweeted this, half of the comments on it are talking about parts of the of Twitter that is broke that are broken. And so if I'm a creator thinking about where to kind of launch a business, which effectively this is, I would be very suspect about doing that on Twitter. I mean, I just feel like you can't trust this product. I mean, they've lost most of their employees and talk about security, talk about, you know, just uh, reliability of a product. I would be very, I would be, as a creator, I would be very reticent to do this on on Twitter right now.
0: I think this is a good opportunity to also talk about how the content creator ecosystem works right. That... Mm-hmm. You you need a following, and I guess a, a question that I had is, is: Does this move by Elon Musk bring content creators from other platforms like TikTok and YouTube, where they already have an established following, and may not have one on Twitter?
5: I don't think this is compelling enough of an offer to bring people over to Twitter. What I think this is more about are the content creators on Twitter that have amassed huge followings, of which there are many, many of whom have built businesses off of that, just putting it elsewhere. And if I'm there, I'm struggling of like, oh my gosh, I've got all these followers here and now I can capitalize on that here, but I don't trust this product. Do I think this is bringing creators over to Twitter? No, I think there's other options to to provide subscription. Obviously, Patreon comes to mind, even meta has a subscription offering so there's well, other places to build a subscription service
0: you know lauren with your jelly smack corporate development hat on creator upload podcast hat or even your former facebook now meta hat how do you quantify the elon musk effect because he has one.
5: <laughs> oh my gosh that's i don't know if we have enough time for that here here's what i'll say about this uh, you know you can't deny you've got an innovator there, right? Like, I think about payments just in itself, right? You've got his PayPal background, right? So you've got this, and I think he has, despite everything that's gone on, I think he's got this lure about him. People still, you know, sort of worship what him in terms of what he's built. You can't you cannot deny him as an innovator. So there's going to be those folks that are going to follow him wherever he goes, right? I think that there's that, and I think that that is... Um, sort of invaluable in a certain sense and why Twitter still has legs and people are still hanging on. That's why we're talking about him right now, right? It's why we're hanging on to every word because we know there's genius there. It's just that he's never run a platform like this. And having been at a platform, obviously similar, you know, I was shocked how much Facebook can break when I, when I was there. I was like, "What do you mean it doesn't work?" Sometimes these platforms are so buggy and they break all the time. And he's gotten rid of all of the infrastructure there by which to support this, basically. And so I feel like there's just some basic, fundamental things that he needs to do before he builds this. But I, I want, I in some ways I want this to work because I think that he is such an, a genius that he could bring to this product. It's just a matter of whether or not they can support it. So quantifiable, I, I mean, I think it's in some ways invaluable and, and uh, undetermined.
0: <laughs> yeah, Caroline, one thing that that really stood out to me in that space is the other night yeah. is Elon Musk talking about how the ad slowdown was impacting their competitors, not just Twitter. And he, he oh, yeah. kind of really labored that point. And on this show, right, Caroline, think Substack, yeah. we see people making moves.
3: And to that point, Lauren, we made the idea with Sarah that Substack's going into notes. They're looking more like Twitter. Twitter's in some ways, sort of shadow banning people who put Substack links in. And where are your people wanting to build community? Is it all about Substack? Do you need to be across all platforms?
5: Well, I I mean, that's fundamentally what Jelly Smack's offering is, right? Like most creators at the end of the day are are experts in one, maybe two platforms, but they recognize that there's a huge audience out there that may not be just sort of servicing. So there's, we are interested, you know, we're really video focused. So we're really focused on more, the creators that I sort of, we sort of work with are really focused on the video platforms. I understand that Twitter, they're supposedly. I mean, he said you could be doing all sorts of things, including video on this subscription. But it's really thinking about uh, platforms like Pinterest and mm. Spotify. Those we're seeing a lot of interest in um, as they they seem much more um, stable. And um, the the opportunity is really exciting on, the, on those kind of platforms. And we're seeing a lot of interest there. Friendly too, dare I say. Lauren <laughs> and
3: Smack. We thank you so nice much. Nice people. You know, <laughs> um, we thank you for being a nice person on our show. We appreciate it.
0: Amazon Web Services is making good on its mission to bring generative AI to cloud customers. I spoke to CEO Adam Salipsky about AI integration on AWS and why there's such an emphasis on the price performance of this tech before its launch.
7: So we're confident that the uh, Amazon Titan models that we announced today, which are Amazon's own uh, branded uh, foundation models, which of course will be available uh, as part of Amazon Bedrock, along with uh, leading third-party Uh, Startups that the Amazon Titan models will be really exciting and are going to power uh, both Amazon internal use cases as well as being available to our external customers to build uh, uh, generative AI solutions and applications on on top of us.
0: Adam, you've played your hand in the field of generative AI on the same day that Andy Jassy, CEO of the broader company, has given his kind of outlook on the world. He talked about AWS facing short-term headwinds. How are you managing those short-term headwinds? What is the Adam Solipsky view of the world, macro speaking right now?
7: Well, I don't think it's any secret that there have been macroeconomic headwinds. Uh, uh, companies in all sorts of different industries have seen you know, slowdowns, slow or as you put it, headwinds of different uh, varieties. Uh, you know, we're, we're very confident in the uh, kind of long-term outlook for AWS. Uh, demand for the cloud remains strong. Uh, customers tell us that uh, we, we remain as we always have right. been. Uh, the leading cloud with the broadest set of capabilities and the deepest set of uh, features within each of our services, uh, with the leading security, leading operational performance of any cloud in the world, So we we feel very confident that we're going to remain on a a long-term road to providing value. And in the short term, we're really focused on continuing to innovate in the areas that matter most to our customers, such as generative AI and such as bringing choice and democratization to that area, just like AWS has always done for computing, has always done for IT. Uh, and of course, on uh, on uh, helping our customers as they try and be cost efficient and they try and tighten their belts, we don't we don't yes. lean away from that. We lean into that, and we say, "Let us work with you to help you lower your costs because we know you need this right now."
3: Such a great conversation, and we thank you for that. And it's time now for Talking Tech, because let's go broader. Let's look to Asia. Chinese President Xi Jinping is reaffirming his call for China to be more self-reliant across a range of industries, including science and technology. During a trip to Southeast China, she met with officials and called for, quote, further steps to enhance independent innovation. Also in China, Blue Focus is one of the country's best-known media agencies, and actually plans to replace third-party copywriters, graphic designers, with a chat GPT style AI system. It's happening, people. Reports say that company has already reached out to local tech firms to explore licensing technology. And the Justice Department is saying that generative AI and other tech innovations may have been released years ago in the United States if it wasn't for Google's monopolized presence as a search engine. This comes ahead of an antitrust suit against Google, scheduled to go to trial in September. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, alongside Ed Ludlow over over there in San Francisco. Let's check in on this market set because we are seeing just the moon music dialing back on tech, but ramping up in terms of the banking sector. We're seeing NASDAQ 100 off by eight tenths of a percent. This is more about the macro picture. Once again, some resiliency, unfortunately, in the pricing of certain goods. The inflation not dialing back as quickly as we'd hoped. The Federal Reserve likely to have to keep on looking at the US economy and slowing it down. That's what the retail data showed us today. That, of course, affects technology stocks. The S&P 500 financials up because J.P. Morgan came out with its numbers and really benefited. Deposits coming in, coming from the likes of Silicon Valley Bank. Ultimately, these banks doing better than had been feared. We see a lift, and I think J.P. Morgan's up about 7%. Two-year yield rising. I mean, that also helps banks, doesn't it, borrowing costs on the rise. But this is a 13 basis point move. We're then still really pricing in what the Federal Reserve is going to do. How much does it have to tackle? Inflation. Move it on. Because... I thought it was inflationary hedge once upon a time, but it ain't at the moment. This is a risk asset. But even as we see tech stocks coming off the boil, we don't see that in the likes of ETH. We're still seeing it holding up to its gains of the day. We're still at the highest level since May 2022. All of this coming after that all-important upgrade earlier this weekend.
0: All right, Cara, let's bring in Tegan Klein, co-founder and chief business officer of Edge and Node, a software development company behind The Graph, an indexing and query protocol organizing the world's open blockchain data and making open data a public good. You are an instrumental name in blockchain industry, regarded in terms of your understanding the underlying technology. Caro just showed us one digital asset. What I'd like to ask you is to explain to us the momentum right now that is in Bitcoin, Ether. Is that coming from a renewed enthusiasm that the underlying blockchain technology is working, is progressing, is moving forward?
9: Absolutely. And with the Shanghai update that we just saw, this is a massive milestone that's been in the works for seven years at Caroline, And uh, it really is kind of a paradigm shift that we're seeing. We're changing the way we coordinate and we incentivize that coordination online. And with this upgrade, uh, it's just a a massive proof to the industry on what is possible. Um, And it's really exciting to see. But to your point, there are so many different projects in the ecosystem. I think. Bitcoin has, has very much proven itself in terms of a new uh, paradigm when it comes to monetary policy, a new system. Uh, and Ethereum and the graph are very much in the Web3 decentralized Internet category.
3: Before we dive into the graph, your first protocol, talk to us a little bit about who's being drawn back in to ETH in particular, is it retail that's being tempted? Is it an institutional interest? Is it just people who are already committed, but you know, helping amid pretty low liquidity at the moment?
9: Yeah, so many of us building in the industry, we, we kind of look away from the market and we just focus on building. And I think that this milestone accomplished with the Shanghai upgrade and, and us moving to proof of stake with Ethereum is a great example of that. Um, so the builders have kept building. Development is at an all-time high. And now you're seeing kind of the market, there was a lot of FUD around because there was 15% of ETH that was staked in the beacon chain that was not liquid. You could not withdraw that. And now with this update, uh, there was a lot of FUD around a lot of people would be dumping those coins. And actually BlockWorks reported today that um, deposits are actually higher than withdrawals with uh, 18,500 ETH uh, being deposited uh, more than withdrawals. So that's an exciting moment. So I think... uh, you know, and we saw ETH yeah. slash BTC down 20% ahead of this this upgrade.
3: So it's kind of the industry proving proving a lot of people wrong. Tegan, you sort of said you look away from prices and... I'm afraid to so say you probably have to look away from your own token price to a certain degree, GRT, because it is well off its highs of more than $2 all the way back in February 2021. I'm sure many would say that was an extraordinary period in time. But how much does it matter that altcoins perhaps aren't participating in some of the rally that we've seen of late in ETH, in Bitcoin? And, and what, what do you do? You, does it matter about the price of one's token when you're trying to build an ecosystem?
9: No, I think that what's, you know, GRT is a work utility token. So the concept is that you actually, uh, you buy it only to use it in the network. Uh, and there's different roles. And again, this comes back to the incentive around coordination and coordinating online. So there are many different participants you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the ecosystem that are participating in these protocols uh, and they're being compensated commensurate to the value that they're putting in. Uh, and that's one of the really powerful pieces
3: beyond just kind of looking at the market or, or the prices. Of course, these sorts of protocols, and you talk about the thousands using it and the, the integration within DApps such as Uniswap. Yeah. Ed, a lot of this, the protocols, is about access, isn't it, at the moment? Democratization. Yeah.
0: So you basically, taken through the graph, I want you to explain to us what that is, but you want people to be able to to publish open APIs, contribute to the network, for it to be, I guess, uh, an open access platform.
9: Exactly. So the Graph is a marketplace for public data. So you think in Web 2, you have one Google. In the Graph network, you have over 400, quote unquote, Googles. There's 400 different companies all around the world operating independently to serve queries. And when I say query, you can think of search in the Graph network for these applications. And there's over 700 applications on the Graph network today. And you pay for the usage of these applications in GRT. uh, And that is the the point of of GRT to be used across these applications. And it's exciting to see how many people are using these applications. And and, uh, it's at an all-time high.
0: Tegan, I think one of the reasons people are really excited about this is it's kind of at the intersection of AI and crypto. Um, Are you an AI startup, an AI entrepreneur in that respect?
9: I wouldn't say that the Graph is a quote unquote AI project. It's very much about open data. But what's exciting around AI and the intersection with the Graph and Web3 is that you could imagine having like a chat GPT on top of the Graph with verifiable data and information. And that's really uh, an exciting opportunity because garbage in, garbage out, even with AI. And now we can have really great arguments around the garbage Uh, using AI technology. So if we can verify that information, that's when it becomes really exciting. And so that's something that the semiotic team, uh, one of the core developers within the graph ecosystem is actually looking at and working on. But within the graph, the indexers do use, uh, many of them use machine learning today around pricing
0: queries. Caroline, I think on this program, you and I, because we're in the markets, we're tracking the value of any given time of a digital asset. Mm. Right. But actually, what we've learned this week, watch parties for (laughs) Ethereum, is that actually people are really closely following the technology, the developments in the underlying technology. And that conversation is starting to creep back in.
3: That's what this show is all about as well, underlying technology. And taken to that point, how, how much does the regulatory environment impede some of the conversation about underlying technology, particularly here in the U.S.?
9: Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see uh, the way the US has been approaching the regulatory market. I think that they are, uh, there's a chance that they are stifling innovation and pushing that. Overseas, But I think one of the positives with some of the regulatory crackdown is that it's pushing people towards transparent systems, towards further decentralization, towards further censorship resistance, because this industry, it's all about giving power and control back to individuals as opposed to kind of locking it up in a centralized company. And that's really powerful. And I think the faster we can get there, the better. And so uh, the regulatory environment is actually pushing the industry in that direction, which is, is a positive.
3: Tegan, great to have some time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tegan Klein, co-founder and chief business officer over at Edge and Node. Meanwhile, Ed?
0: Yep, coming up, observability platform, sorry about that one, Honeycomb raises $50 million even as the VC landscape's still rolling a little bit from that SVB collapse and a broader downturn. More on that next with CEO Christine Yen. I want to take a really quick look at semiconductors. The Socks off by bound 7 tenths of 1%. It is heading for a second consecutive weekly decline. Mixed stories here, right? There's optimism in the commoditized memory space that we're addressing the glut. But now with the run-up in NVIDIA and AI-powered rallies, for example, we're starting to question valuations. We're pulling back a little bit, down 710 to 1% on the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. This is Bloomberg.
3: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop.
0: All right, time for the VC roundup. Crypto startup Chia Network, which was valued at about $500 million in 2021, says it has moved a step closer to a U.S. IPO and confidentially submitted a draft registration statement to the SEC. The IPO's size and price range has not been determined yet. And Estranis, the startup that builds geostationary satellites, has just raised $200 million in a financing deal valuing the company at $1.6 billion. That in a round led by the growth fund of Andreessen Horowitz. That's all according to a Bloomberg source. Meanwhile, the company is preparing for its first ever launch this Saturday. And Caro, I've got a Friday treat for you. A chart. Brand new data set. Okay, this is the white line, the Refinitive VC index. Think of it as a proxy index for VC companies investing in private startups, the valuation of private startups. And this is some research that came out from Bloomberg Intelligence overnight. Basically, when you look at the lows of 2018 and 2020 on the Nasdaq 100, the public markets for the tech sector, we see that VC index outperform. Mm. But something has changed year to date where the Nasdaq 100 is up pretty significantly, 16 17%. And that VC, Refinitive Index, is trailing behind. I think that's really interesting that we've broken away from that trend at a time where we have kind of questioned financial conditions for private companies, valuations coming down, the prospect of doing a down round. But it's a brand new index. I love this chart. You can check it out. G, hashtag BTB on the terminal. And always on Bloomberg Technology.
3: Yeah, and well, let's continue with that sort of juxtaposition between public and private. And we can dig a little bit deeper now and into the venture capital era you say is lagging behind tech. But some people, and you just run through a few, are still managing to get their funding in. In spite of this economic turmoil for today's VC Spotlight, let's bring in Honeycomb CEO Christine Yen, who's on to talk about a Series D funding round that you did, $50 million in the bank. And what exactly, how hard was the environment you brought on Investors that you hadn't passed, Insight, for example, were they willing to be writing checks for companies such as yours in this environment?
1: Short answer, yes. They're absolutely willing to. Um, I recognize tricky environment right now, mm-hmm. not one where I'd recommend folks go, you know, running out there to try to raise a round. Um, but the fact of the matter is, we were are growing company in a huge space. Um, last year really was the year where it was clear observability was hitting the mainstream and we were the leaders in this space. Um, and so for us, the round, honestly, it was, it was an opportunistic round and came together quite quickly um, yeah. and really just makes me grateful for the continued support from our existing investors.
3: Scale Ventures, another one headline as well. So I love that you sort of tell us that this was opportunistic. Opportunistic to build what you say is the best observability tooling for your software engineering team. So, what exactly do you do? How are you helping the customers that we're currently shining light on Slack and HelloFresh?
1: Yeah, in the simplest terms, uh, we help engineering teams understand why their software is not behaving the way that they expect. Uh, you flashed some great logos up there. Thank you. Uh, Vanguard, for example, used us to pr- help figure out why the, one, of the, one of their pages on their personal investor's website was not loading. Slack uses us to figure out why um, some of their, their fixes don't get released as quickly as they expect. In, in, in software, there's always a, a slight difference between the way that you, code, you think that code will behave when you have it in your head versus what it's like in front of real users. And we help all of these engineering teams shorten that, shorten that distance and make sure that what they think they're putting out there is what their users are experiencing.
0: Hey, Christine, in our audience on Bloomberg Technology, there are so many founders out there with companies much smaller than yours, and they'll see that you were able to raise this money. You've just explained the problem that you're working on in the addressable market. How do you use the funds? Tell us about the size of your business, how you're going to manage your longevity and runway.
1: We are about the size of the business. Solid growth stage Um, in terms of headcount. We have maybe 160, 170 folks. Um, You know, looking forward, we're really excited to use some of this capital to expand in geos, invest in our ecosystem, um, and really just be able to continue committing to staying on the bleeding edge of what's possible um, in the space by investing in new, exciting tech frontiers. Um, You know, really, I think we as a company tend to be fairly pragmatic in our spend. Um, That is really what helped us weather the last couple of years, Um, not just chasing high valuations um, and, and uh, running the risk of a down round. This is an up round, which we're all very happy about. And um, I think our focus has always been build a great product, build a strong business, build a company. Our people are proud to have been a part of and, uh, it, it is a little too glib to say that the rest will follow. But if you keep your focus on those things, the, the market is just a, another tool to continue achieving those goals.
0: Christine, you, you formerly were a senior software engineer at Facebook, uh, now known as Meta, of course. And when I was at Startup Grind earlier this week, we were discussing layoffs and the opportunity that layoffs can can offer. Are you going out there to kind of hire some talent from your former employer that may now be on the market, given that money you raised?
1: Yes, some, uh, but as with everyone, we are doing it pragmatically, thoughtfully, uh, with an eye to managing cost and efficiency. Um, but we are, we are hiring. Um, we're continuing to do really exciting work on the bleeding edge of observability and these. And technology um, and we make a real impact in the lives of our customers and their software engineering practices so you know every door open when a door closes another door opens um, and we're really excited to continue building the best team that we can to build the best product and service that we can.
0: Caroline it's so interesting to get the real-term perspectives of a founder CEO the other thing that you know I was discussing at startup grind is the idea that not everyone is in San Francisco or the Bay Area People were there from all around the world.
3: Yeah, and look, Christine, you're San Reno right now. How are you building a team? Are you building it in person? <laughs> are you building it in Reno? Are you building it globally? How do you see the the new world in which we live in and, and ultimately you up at the best engineering talent?
1: We are largely concentrated in the US and Canada. We've got some folks in the UK. When we were actually we actually had aspirations to be a distributed company even before COVID, um, and the you know shifting to remote work was just hitting a, an accelerator on, on plans that we already had in place. Um, I actually looked recently and I was surprised to find that two thirds of our of our company are located out of traditional tech hubs. Sorry, outside of traditional tech hubs um, and. It means that when we are able to come together, it's folks from Utah and uh, Tennessee and Ohio. And it's wonderful to be able to tap into a talent pool that is, doesn't have to be concentrated in a particular geo. Time zones are a little harder. We're working around that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think remote work is certainly what right. we're committing on, committing to.
0: Christine, you founded this business because your time at Facebook, you recognized the IT landscape was changing. I want to end on asking you what, what's changing in technology right now that's a driver for your company. Is it AI, for example, and all of the data conversation about the inputs?
1: I think in terms of driving the company, the way that we build software has changed dramatically in the last five or 10 years um, with Trends like Kubernetes, microservices, serverless technologies, you have this explosion of complexity in um, any sort of architecture diagram on how logic flows through a system. With that increase in complexity comes with uh, a, a different set of expectations for any tools like ours that are meant to make sense of that for a software engineering team. Um, so that trend, those, those trends continuing to uh, grow Crest um, and make software engineering teams' lives difficult. Mm. AI is definitely an interesting um, area we've got our eye on. I think that there are, as with any technology, it could be uh, there. There are cases where it can be misapplied, and there are cases where it can be perfectly applied. Um, and you know, in in our world, if we make a wrong, if our AI uh, attempts make a wrong choice. It either risks not waking an engineer up when the software is burning down in the middle of the night, um, or it risks waking engineers up in the middle of the night when they don't need to be and burning hmm. them out. Um, so we are trying to be very thoughtful about where we uh, where we ask software to make decisions, and instead are more interested in how can we help humans be better versions of themselves. Yes, uh, mantra of one of our um, one of our folks that I'm borrowing is, we want to build mecha
3: suits, not robots. <laughs> I like that, augmented. We love con- the conversation. Thank you, Honeycomb CEO Christine Yen there. It is going viral. The Coachella Festival is upon us. Bad Bunny, Ed, Blackpink, Frank Ocean, my personal favorite, headlining the right. festival. Which is actually at a polo club in California, but it's not all about the music right. in real life, right?
0: Yeah, you don't even need to go. If you're a Fortnite player, you can experience it virtually this year.
3: Yeah, and what about YouTube? Have you seen this? They're dubbing it Couchella. You're going to do that? Couchella. <laughs> that does it from this edition of Bloomberg Technology. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.